Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about tech, including news, reviews, and maybe a rant once in a while. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh7. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, weekly since 1994. Leo. I'm Leo Notenboom, lover of coffee, corgis, and computers, not always in that order, and of course, the Leo behind AskLeo.com, Gary. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of MacMost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials. I also make mobile games that you can find at CleverMedia.com. Well, I want to start talking about uh, Hawaii this week, their uh, ballistic missiles incoming warning that went over cell phones. The government has this program where they can send emergency messages to cell phones. They can draw, you know, an an outline and say, everybody in this area gets this emergency message. And it's very often used for severe weather and things like that. But they used it in Hawaii to say missiles incoming. And what I want to talk about is the fiasco behind, behind why this happened. And I talked about this on my blog today, that apparently every time they change shifts, the oncoming guy was supposed to do a test. And the way they do the test is they pull down a drop-down menu, and there's two options. Send a test, send an incoming ballistic missile warning. And apparently he just clicked the wrong one. Now, apparently both of these have a are you sure dialogue, but, you know, when you're doing this every day, when you come on shift, my guess is that the dialogue was the same for both of the selections. He just didn't notice he clicked the wrong one, and when it said are you sure, he clicked yes like he does every day. Well, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. And then the second part of the fiasco was – This is all done through FEMA, and they had permission or they had it set up so that they could send these warnings, but they didn't have permission to send anything else like, oh, no, disregard that warning. So they had to actually, you know, compose the message and then, you know, get FEMA on the telephone and say, we need to send this other message that says, no, it was a mistake, and that took 38 minutes to do. Wow. I like the comment that the, uh, uh, what is it, the governor was able to send out a text message faster than they were able to send out the uh, the retraction. Yeah, both the state's um, Office of Emergency Services and the governor sent out tweets while they were waiting for this permission from FEMA to send out, uh, no, never mind, you're not about to die. I think the biggest lesson here is the one that you just pointed out where there's this just really horrific user interface. User interface matters. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder where that interface came from and if it's anywhere else, like if other states are using it or other agencies are using it, I, you know, or was it a one-off some, somebody developed it just for Hawaii. I'm guessing it was developed in-house because they very, very quickly, I mean, already today have it so that you need two people, one of them to to say they want to send a warning and somebody else has to approve it. So I, I don't think they could have done it that fast if it wasn't somebody that they could get right in there right then to tweak the code a little bit. 
Yeah, of course, that, right. that worries me because it's uh, – so if now if it takes two people and it's the real thing, and if it takes 45 more seconds to send the alert out, uh, then was it worth making that change? You know, if it's going to delay an actual alert? Yeah, you know, that, I'm not sure that having an alert is really going to help anybody anyway, but <laughs> good point. Well, well, okay. So yes, certainly if there's incoming nuclear missiles, an alert probably not going to help you a whole lot. But as you pointed out, Randy, the system is actually fairly generic. I'm sure they use it for many other types of emergency warnings. And in that case that, you know, an alert really could probably make a difference. Would 45 seconds make a difference? I don't know. Um, I do think that, um, you know, having a second second verify feels like overkill. This does seem like a user interface change could have could have easily you know dealt with it. At least make the confirmation dialogue look different. <laughs> you know, <laughs> put in big red or big red letters. This is live. You know, are you sure? Right. That's all it really takes. Yeah, I I was watching the news at lunch today and. Um, somebody was talking about how you know horrible it was that they didn't have a you know double person verify system and that other similar systems have that and he was equating it to the people that actually would launch missiles and i'm like i think there's a really big difference between an emergency system where basically what they do is send out a message and they're done they've done their job um and you know actual you know military defense systems where they're actually going to launch you know retaliation um it may not be the it's certainly not as bad having a one person. Uh, yeah, system. it's not a state employee in Hawaii that's launching missiles. That's for it, sure. Exactly. So, so it's, I don't know. It's the news is all over the place on this one, making it sometimes making it sound scarier. I, I'm just you know grateful that nobody was hurt. I was waiting for the story that day to come out that somebody got in a car accident or somebody got you know hurt. Or, or somebody shot themselves in the head because they didn't want to fry. Yeah, you know, just something horrible happening because I, of that. I honestly don't remember where I heard this, but there was apparently a story about, you know, people going into uh, manholes to go hide in the sewer because they they felt this was happening, which in and of itself seems kind of interesting at least and, and somewhat of an extreme reaction. But, you know, when you think about it, it's not that, that bad an idea. Yeah, and uh, hmm, it, I mean, you know, it, of course, it's it said incoming ballistic missile alerts. So, you know, as far as an early warning is concerned, it could be relevant. It doesn't necessarily mean a nuclear warhead. And certainly what the stuff Korea was testing at the beginning was very low-yield stuff. So depending upon where you're located... And also depending upon their accuracy, right? Well, of course. I mean, if the thing, if a low yield nuke were to uh, splash, or, you know, explode 10 miles out at sea, um, having, you know, the difference between being outside, you know, and being down in the basement in your house could be a, could be a, or, or in the sewer, as the case may be. In the yeah. sewer, yes. And that's a good point because this whole thing started with reactivating Hawaii's. Cold War era warning system because they're the closest target apparently from North Korea. And that's been a threat. And so they are feeling a little extra vulnerable. So that's why they put this system into in operation again in the first place. 
right? It made it more realistic. If if they had been testing the system, you know, five years ago, people may have thought, what, really? You know, but with all the news, people, you know, took it as real. There was enough credibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, scary. So yeah, user interface. It's, it's. Uh, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where if you're a user interface computer user interface star and you really know what you're doing and you're really good at it, you're probably working for a lot of money for a tech company, not for like a state government, you know, emergency alert system. But yet, it's very important to have user interface done right there. Yep. As you say, it's really just amazing that nobody was hurt or killed in this incident because there was a lot of panic going on and, and you know, not surprising that that was the case. And what about a chicken little effect too? I mean, so now that this has happened once and it's been a false alarm, even though it said this is not a test, you know, in the, in the alert, uh, if something should happen and you know, the alarm goes out, how many people are going to be like, mm, I don't know. But again, all oh, those dummies. Yeah. 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 The message has to say, you know, we really mean it this time. Yeah. We're serious this time. And at more exclamation points at the end. And and clearly this was a prepackaged message. Are they gonna change that wording now? So very interesting. Which that part at least is also somewhat surprising. But I have to agree, it is kind of also surprising that there wasn't a um a way to quickly retract. There yep. is now apparently, but uh, <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, that's probably the biggest, I think, the, the biggest positive step they took is having a good way to retract it quickly. Um, that's, and you mentioned, you know, the, the, um, maybe it's a little bit of, of an overkill to have two different people have to do it. Uh, one of my readers actually commented on the, my blog post that he used to work at a nuke plant and to shut down the reactor in an emergency two different people had to push buttons simultaneously. Mm. So, you know, that's a pretty extreme situation that, you know, you're having a meltdown, but you still have to get two guys to say, okay, one, two, three, go. So interesting. Yeah. I don't know much about, about it, but it's something maybe there's a, I'm thinking there's a danger in, it's a risky thing to do to shut down a reactor. You know, it's a, it's a greater than zero risk when you say, let's just shut it down or maybe a fast shutdown versus a yeah, especially gradual in a hurry. shutdown. So, so they don't want somebody to accidentally do the fast shutdown, <laughs> um, which is for emergencies only. Um, and maybe that's, that's why. So, hmm. I don't know. Hopefully this is the last we'll hear of this system and any troubles that they have. Indeed. Yeah. So moving on, I suppose. Facebook is changing the algorithm that they use to decide on your behalf what you want to see. It's always been controversial. We've known for a long time that um, you don't get to choose what appears in your Facebook feed. You get to like some pages. You get to make some friends. But what appears on your screen when you look at your Facebook feed is determined by a fairly apparently complex algorithm that involves how much you've interacted with people, how important Facebook things of pages relevant to your interests that you've shown by what you like, what you shared, what you've interacted with, and so forth. Uh, I think it was late last week, 
Mark Zuckerberg announced that they're changing the algorithm and they're changing it in such a way to prioritize individual interaction over um, basically everything else. Uh, in some ways, it's a, um, um, it's a way to decrease, I guess, the, the amount of commercial pages that are showing up in people's feeds and focusing on trying to focus on a person-to-person interaction. I'm not exactly sure what it's going to mean in terms of, you know, when a person shares something that is of a you know commercial feed or or worst case I think one of the a lot of this is probably a reaction to the whole fake news scenario but a lot of the fake news stuff was stuff that was shared by individuals so I don't know how that's going to factor into uh, to what people do see the scary part at least as uh, people with uh, businesses or non-individual, non-personal pages on Facebook uh, is that people are going to see less of the pages that they have explicitly liked. That means, you know, less Ask Leo will show up in your feed, fewer This Is True stories, uh, that kind of stuff. And that's got a lot of folks concerned. Naturally, it's mostly uh, people with pages that they would like to see um, you know, how get in front of people. Um, it's unclear how it's going to affect groups. It's unclear how it's going to affect um, uh, cause pages. And by that, I mean both um, literally, you know, nonprofit causes, but also affinity groups. Uh, like, I, you know, there's a half a dozen or a dozen different Corgi related pages that I like. Mm-hmm. Am I going to be seeing less of those in favor of individual interactions? I don't know. Supposedly, this has actually started rolling out already, and it'll be interesting to see exactly what the impacts are going to be. But I think it's important to real- for people to realize that, you know, not only does the, does the algorithm exist, but sometimes it's not enough to just like a page. Sometimes you need to take extra steps to, uh, to actually see what that page has been posting. Well, I have two com- comments on that. One of them is that pages were already being ramped down, ramped down, ramped down, where you know, maybe three to 5% of the people who said they like your page and they want to see your posts were actually seeing them. And the purpose for that was so Facebook could charge you to show it to more of them. So that's the second part is if Facebook's going to ramp down all this stuff, then how are they going to make money and keep the whole thing going? Well, I'm not really too concerned about Facebook making money. They will come up with ways to make money. Uh, But he actually said um, that this does mean that people will probably spend less time on Facebook, which I find just a bad thing, just a fascinating, but a fascinating statement from, from Zuckerberg. It just, you know, I mean, on one hand, he's like flaunting the amount of money that they're making, right. By saying that, well, yeah, we don't need that much. We can ramp it down and this will be fine. Um, But I do think it's, it's an interesting approach. I think it is, um, uh, obviously controversial for folks such as myself. I, for example, I, you know, as you pointed out, we're already seeing uh, a very, very small penetration of the people that actually, like our pages actually see our stuff. If that's going to be even less, well, that acts as a disincentive for me to participate on Facebook more than anything else, um, which is really unfortunate because 
I know there are a lot of people on Facebook. Uh, a lot of people like things on purpose. Um, again, to go back to the Corgi community, we, um, we recently set up a page for, actually a group for uh, one of the oldest mailing lists. Uh, that's it's literally, it's been around since the late 1990s. And all of a sudden, um, the activity on that group just skyrocketed because people were just happy to see us on Facebook and they loved interacting and seeing the pictures and doing whatever with respect to their dogs. Um, are they going to be impacted by this kind of stuff? I don't know. That's it's, it's a very, very interesting. Um, but like I said, it's one of those things that keeps on changing. Gary, I forget what's your, do you have a, you've got a Facebook presence for Mac most, don't you? Sure. Yeah. So I was just looking at it, you know, it's just, Obviously, facebook.com slash macmost is my Facebook page. And I've got over 10,000 likes or follows, about the same number of follows as likes. And just, you know, the typical thing, and people, uh, people don't have businesses that are using Facebook, don't understand, is, you know, I get about 1,000 people every time I post that it says I've reached that many people. So it's interesting. So out of 10,000 saying, I like MacMost on Facebook and I want to see MacMost stuff, only 10% of those people see each time I post. That's actually pretty darn good. Yeah. I've got 55,000 followers and I generally get about 3,000 when I post. Yeah. So, but, and a lot of people don't realize this and you know, uh, uh, some other things are that for a long time, and still probably, I just probably ignore it. Facebook encourages small business owners to spend money to get more followers. So they're constantly hitting us with like, spend twenty bucks, get more followers, kind of thing, and giving us various ways to do that. With the idea being, well, if I have more followers, then the more people will see my stuff. But then, once you get those followers, they don't show your stuff to as many followers as you have. So it kind of feels a little weird. You know, it's like Facebook wants us to spend money. Hey, if I'm going to spend money, show my followers what I'm, what I'm showing. And then they encourage us on top of that to say, when you post something, Hey, more of your followers will see this if you pay us. So it feels really weird. I'm glad that Facebook is, is not my main way of reaching people because for some small business owners, it is. And I feel bad for them because they're getting hit. You know, pay pay us to get followers, and once you get the followers, pay us to have your followers see what you're posting. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think the big lesson to learn here is not that you can't use Facebook, but that you really have to use it safely and carefully. That you really have to understand that they can and clearly do change the rules um, whenever they feel like it, and that can be to your benefit or it can really, really be to your detriment. So, like I said, I'm not sure what, what the long-term implications for pages like ours are going to be, but uh, right now it's a little scary and it's a little, it's a little, I don't know, less than encouraging for our relationships with Facebook. Yeah, and I always caution, I, I see groups that are not businesses trying to use Facebook um, as a notification system, like, for instance, schools or, you know, sports teams, you know, like teams you'd actually play on and clubs and things like this say, well, everybody's at Facebook. So we'll just send out our notifications for what's going on with the group to Facebook. 
And when I see that, I have you know feel the need to tell them, hey, you know that means that people may not see that stuff. Like if you send out an email, everybody will get the email unless there's a problem with their email. But if you rely on Facebook, you could send out a, a, a notice that there's going to be a meeting or an event or something, and there could be people that want to know about it and will just not get that in their newsfeed. I think it's worse than there could be. It sounds like there absolutely will be people who will yeah. never see that notice. Exactly. So schools that send out, you know, use them. I've seen schools say, well, we're going to use that as our system, notify parents of things going on. And it's like, no, you, you don't do that. <laughs> you know, have it as an option, but don't rely on that. Have people sign up for email lists where you can directly contact them and not rely on Facebook. Now, the one scenario that would work for schools and other organizations like that is if they're using Facebook Messenger. I don't know how easy it is to send what it boils down to a broadcast message. seems like it would be pretty cumbersome at this point. And there are but, people that hate Messenger, too. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but you at least, but even so, if you're, if you're on Facebook, just regular Facebook, and somebody, well, somebody you know, somebody you're connected with sends you a message, you get a notification. But again, yeah, you're right. If, if somebody you don't know or somebody you haven't connected with uh, sends you a message, you may never hear about it because it's buried in that other messages tab. So, yeah, it's, yeah Facebook is not a notification tool by any means. Yeah, and there's still people that are, resist, that, are, that are mostly mobile and mostly on their phones, and they still resist downloading that second app, you know, the Messenger app. Yes. And I, I've seen that. I've seen people say, you know, oh, by the way, if you've ever tried to send me a message through Facebook, I'm not looking at it because I refuse to download their app. Um, and it is annoying, I have to say, why, can't, why they have two separate apps. But It, it is annoying. If only they've got multiple, multiple apps, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. It used to be. There used to be a very valid reason for not having it, and that was it used to be a big battery suck but uh, they seem to have cleaned that part up at least. Yeah. Yeah, so Gary, I not, not only don't have the Messenger app on my phone, I don't have the Facebook app either. So if I want to look at Facebook on my phone, I use my browser. But pretty much I've really ramped down my Facebook time just because I don't think it's uh, healthy for me. There's the health aspect of it. And then, uh, you know, to go back to the business model, there's the return on the investment. The return is is apparently low and getting lower. Yep. Yeah, but I'm afraid that there's a threshold where eventually businesses, the ones that are spending money on Facebook, will stop spending money on Facebook. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a big company with, you know, a lot of money coming in, a lot of money going out. And if suddenly a lot of companies stop spending money on Facebook, um, it could be in, they could be in trouble. No, they won't. They'll, no. they'll change the rules again. Oh, that's true. They could just, yeah, change it back. Or do something else, but yeah. anyway. All righty. Randy, you've got something interesting. So back in 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that online businesses did not have to collect sales tax in any, for, for any state where they did not have a physical presence. They call that the nexus. And Amazon was most famous for pretty much not opening up any physical presence in any state uh, unless they really needed to so that they wouldn't have to collect sales tax in that state. So now that there's so much online business going on, 
the Supreme Court has agreed to a petition from South Dakota to revisit the whole question. So not only would big companies like Amazon have to collect in every state, even if they didn't have a physical presence there, what I'm worried about is really small businesses such as my own and having to either collect sales tax for a lot of different states and maybe other countries, who knows, because certainly some other countries are trying to get us to, to collect sales tax or use tax or GST. But, you know, can you imagine even in Colorado where I am right now, if I had to collect sales tax for every different county, that would be a nightmare as it is. But every county in the United States, now it's, you know, just an absolute horrible nightmare. But So it'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court comes up with and what's going to happen after that. But certainly uh, small businesses are really watching this and kind of worried that they may have to start collecting sales tax for Rhode Island and Guam. I think it's really, really interesting that it's South Dakota that is uh, behind this right now, probably because they're getting not much sales tax revenue because who's got a nexus in South Dakota? Right. Amazon might. I mean, they, they've certainly, you know, they're certainly charging sales tax everywhere these days, but um, South Dakota seems like they would be one of the most impacted states on the other end of the spectrum. I know both of you remember that my wife and I used to run a retail doll shop, collectible doll shop, and we regularly shipped um, around the United States and certainly around the world. And I can absolutely sympathize with with your concern, Randy, that having to collect sales tax for every state we ship to, that's a pain. The real pain is at the end of the month or the quarter or the year, having to figure it all out, having to report it, having to file, what, 50 different state sales tax reports. It's insane. I just, I can't imagine doing that. About the time we uh, shut down the doll shop, eh, gosh, 2008, um, Washington State, where we're located, uh, was in the process of implementing a per county uh, sales tax requirement, uh, similar to what you you were just talking about, Randy, and that was that the sales tax we had been calculating was based on our location, and what they wanted us to do instead was calculate and collect the sales tax based on the destination within the state. Uh, at least there was going to be several different tools available for that, and it was still only one report. I just can't imagine the immense complexity of doing that across the entire country. I will say that living in Washington State, this whole Amazon tax-free thing never happened. <laughs> yeah, you were first. You got to we pay right away. We paid from day one. Colorado is pretty new. I mean, Colorado's a year, um, not even a year. I think it was like last February. Actually, I think um, it's a, I think it's two years now. Two years, okay. That so we were holdouts for a long time, and there was a actually a big to do about that because Amazon revoked their famous associates program, which is their affiliate program, where you can have a a link on your website to a book, and you get you know a few cents if somebody purchases off of that. People do that all around, but in Colorado for years we weren't allowed to do that. 
because uh, Amazon wanted to disassociate itself with the state as much as possible. But then they gave in, opened a whole big depot and a next, you know, uh, uh, you know, some hired some software developers, a whole bunch of stuff going on in Colorado. So now they charge sales tax here. And looking it up, there's 45 states as of uh, a few months ago that all collect sales taxes from Amazon, only a few that do not. And some of those, I think, don't because they don't have a sales tax, like Oregon and New Hampshire. So um, so they're almost complete, almost every state now. Right, and I, I like to cover a little bit as to what happened in Colorado is that several states, and Colorado was far from the first that tried this, tried to argue that having associates or affiliates in the state created nexus. And just to say, no, we're not going to stand for that, they just cut all the affiliates off and we weren't able to collect that little spiff anymore, that few cents per sale. So when that happened, I was making about $1,000 a year and paying, you know, paying uh, not sales tax, but paying income tax on that income. And Colorado tried this, even though this happened in multiple states before Colorado even tried this. I don't know which states, but several states said, oh, hey, your affiliates create Nexus, so Amazon just shut down the affiliate program in that state. And why Colorado thought that would be a good idea to try this, I don't really understand because obviously they're just going to cut off the affiliates. I'm a pretty small player, you know, a whole thousand bucks a year, but, you know, there's me, there's you, there's thousands of others that were doing this in Colorado. It actually cost the state tax money because we didn't earn that income and didn't pay that income tax. So yeah. I was really angry with the state for even trying this. And it took several years before Amazon finally said, okay, we want to create a physical presence in, in the state, we will start collecting sales tax. Yeah, I was in the same boat. I was actually doing a little bit better. So there was you know, more tax for me coming that, that they stopped collecting immediately because I stopped making that money. Um, not only was it income tax that they were not collecting for me because I wasn't making that money anymore, but both you and I are residents, which means the money was coming here to Colorado. Staying right. here in Colorado, you know. We were spending that money here spending, in Colorado. Yeah, spending it, keeping it. I was keeping it at a Colorado-owned bank. You know, I mean, it was everything was Colorado about that. And it, that money stopped coming into Colorado. Um, now, what I heard, I don't want to get too much into the, the tax stuff because it's not, we're tech enthusiasts, not tax enthusiasts. <laughs> the, uh, the, what I heard was that the way the budget works in Colorado is that they can, they can only have a budget for as much money as they think they're going to collect in taxes. So they estimated that with Amazon paying sales taxes, they would collect, you know, X number of million dollars, you know, $20 million say of extra revenue. So they budgeted for $20 million more to spend. And of course they got none of that because Amazon never paid any of it, but they still spent it. So I assume that just went into the, the deficit or whatever Colorado has as the equivalent um, but you know the legislators got to to spend more money on whatever their favorite government programs were because they claimed that that money was coming in. So do I do I understand correctly from you guys that uh, Colorado has a state income tax? 
Yes. Okay. And yeah, Washington does not. So. That's right. Yeah, you guys don't have that. Now we have one. It's 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 not a. Uh, it's not like some of the East Coast states I know that have a. Yeah, I think it's three percent. We've got a. You know, it's it's big enough that we have to pay attention to it, <laughs> but uh, it's not like uh, I think some of those East Coast states have pretty sizable. Right. Now we end up paying attention to our sales tax, but. That's right. Yeah, you guys. Well, we have we have pretty high sales taxes too. So, you know. We, we get hit with all that stuff and property taxes that are growing. So I just find it fascinating that, that Amazon has grown to the point where um, the whole issue becomes moot as they very slowly build a nexus in almost every state in the form of either, you know, software development in some places, but you know, warehouses everywhere. So, right. So these states, I mean, uh, South Dakota doesn't seem to be on this list of states that's not collecting sales tax. So South Dakota must already be collecting sales tax from Amazon. Hmm. And so they are getting this money in. Um, so the question is, is, you know, if the Supreme Court were to reverse this decision, it would affect small businesses, like Randy was saying. And it wouldn't really affect Amazon because they're already paying it. Um, so... And would it really help re local retailers? Because, you know, the, the whole thing is uh, they say, oh, well, local retailers are going out of business because people don't want to shop there because they pay sales tax there, but not online. But that's not really true anymore. Well, it depends on if the local retailer is trying to sell out of state as well. That's, those are the folks that get burned the most. Well, that's true. But, but it's like if the idea is I'm not going to go to my local bookshop to buy a book there because it's going to be 7% sales tax. But if I buy from Amazon, it's zero sales tax. That's not just not true. So right. will it really save the local bookstore? It would also be interesting to understand how the other, you know, really big online retailers um, are dealing with the issue. Cause we use, we use Amazon as the example because, you know, there's kind of groundbreaking in so many different ways, but by now the same, the same issues apply to their biggest competitors, like the Walmarts and the Targets and, and right. the others of the world. You know, how are they dealing with this issue? Are they um, kind of standing behind Amazon and letting Amazon continue to break the ground or what? I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Well, Walmart and, and Target do have Nexus in yeah. probably every state. So they're probably kind of upset with this because it gave Amazon a little bit of an advantage. Exactly. That was a problem for a while. They did all start. Matter of fact, the the example Target was used as the example every time Amazon said, "Well, it would be too hard to charge sales tax," and people would just say, "Well, but Target's do, doing it. <laughs> you know, their online stuff gets all that sales tax charged. So, how hard can it be? I mean, why can't you guys? You guys say you're the you know the tech geniuses out of all you know all of these companies. Why guy? Why can't you guys do it? But these old brick and mortar stores can do it." Yeah, I'm not really worried about Amazon being able to figure this out. I am worried about little mom and pop websites right. that uh, there's one guy working out of a spare bedroom like I'm doing right now. Um, <laughs> that's who I'm worried about. And, you know, I'm sure there's going to be services that pop up that say, we'll do this for you, but how much are they going to charge? So, I mean, already I, I just wrote a check to the state for $18 in collected sales tax. That's all I collected in from Colorado residents last year mm. because most of my stuff is, is not tangible goods. But then I have to write them another check for $16 for my sales tax license. 
So it's yeah. almost as much for the license as it is that I'm paying every every year. Yeah, one of the things I always felt that Colorado could do better with that is they need to have like a threshold type of thing because yeah, they do have these really, you know, you end up sending these really tiny checks in. Um, you know, my wife's book business was online for the last few years, which meant that only a few books were actually sold in Colorado as opposed to previously where most were sold in Colorado where she had a retail presence. But no matter how small those checks were that she had to send in for sales tax, she had to send them in. There was no, hey, if it's under 50 bucks, you know, don't worry about it or, you know, let it accumulate and only pay it when it's above a certain amount. So, least, yeah. Here we, uh, we at least have the option, I think, if, you're, if your revenue is low enough to go from monthly to quarterly or maybe even annual reporting. Yeah, I got to switch to annual because mine was so low. But there actually is a threshold, Gary. I looked that up uh, when yeah. I was was doing this. It's one thousand dollars in gross sales. In gross so sales. Yeah. So if you're just doing, you know, some really tiny catering or something like that, and and only have a a tiny side business, thousand dollars is the cutoff. Yeah, it seems like it should be in the amount owed. Like if the amount you owe annually is less than a hundred dollars or something or less than 10 even or less than yeah they have to figure out like what's the administrative cost for them to process you as an account and you know all that stuff and then at some point it just becomes uh not worth their time to do it and certainly it's already not worth your time to do it when it's so small so gary you nailed it earlier this isn't the tax enthusiast podcast (laughs) um how about the uh, the credit card issue that you, yeah. were, you were mentioning? That's kind of an interesting one to dovetail in here, anyway. Yeah. So you know you know how when you you pay for something with a credit card and they give you the slip and you sign, and that's something we've been doing our entire lives is signing those little credit card slips. That's about to end forever in April. Um, the uh, all the big credit card companies, first uh, was American Express and MasterCard and Discover, did it, uh, I think it was back in December, and Visa just joined them in announcing that in April, you're no longer going to have to sign to use your credit cards. And you know the reasoning is that that's really the weakest part of the entire security chain there, because um, nobody really looks at those or cares or anything about those signatures. Uh, so getting rid of that kind of modernizes the process a bit. Um, it'll certainly simplify things, you know, not having to have, you know, these pens and papers and, and these, L, these old-fashioned LED screens, you know, that had like, they look like you were from the 1980s where you would try to sign your name on them with a little plastic pen. Are you sure that they're actually able to get rid of them? Because I, my understanding, what I, what I read somewhere was that the signature requirement only goes away if you're using a chip, if you're using a chip reader. Oh, I, I read that it was for all, well, that they all have to have chips in them now, I believe. So perhaps maybe there's some, I, and I'm sure there are some grandfathered rules in, like for instance, the, the chip, we are all supposed to switch to chips, except for some reason, all the gas stations complained that they couldn't do it. Which right. didn't seem to make any sense to me because it seems like that would be the first place and the easiest place to switch right. would be, all the gas stations, but um, although I just paid at, at a gas station that I had to swipe my card at the pump uh, for, you know, they saw the old thing, and that I just got gas yesterday, and they had updated their devices. 
and I actually inserted my card and it read the chip. Cool. So I guess they're getting there. But yeah, I think the idea is the chips, you know, if you have a card with a chip, the signature really is a very weak point in the whole security thing anyway. Um, I always thought that was true for uh, paper checks as well. Oh, yeah. A signature on a check, I mean, especially with today's technology, you know, what do you do? You, you, you sign a check and you hand it to somebody else, or you sign a credit card receipt and you hand it to somebody else. Well, now they take it to the back and they scan your signature, and now they've got a signature copy that they can use on whatever they want to use. It's, it's crazy. And they don't check. They're supposed to, you know, check your ID and the signature on the back of your ID. I've even written in the past on my cards. I sign it and I write, write CID, and they still don't do it. They still don't ask. Of course, a lot of times now, I never actually hand my card to anybody for them to see that. Right. You do it, uh, you know, at, you, you use the machine yourself. And interestingly, traveling around the world, that's pretty standard around the world is – you your card never leaves your sight. You know, even at a restaurant, they come over to your table with a little credit card machine, and they stick your card in right there, um, or you, you know, they ask you to stick it in. Um, and it's just weird in America that uh, we still have this thing where you hand your credit card to a waiter and they leave with it. They take off and they go into the back with your credit card, and it's out of your sight, out of your possession for a long time before it comes back to you. Um, hopefully that's something that will be. It's, it's funny because my, my cousin from Holland and her husband visited last year for uh, about a month or so. And it was one of the first things they commented on um, that it was weird. Where are you would, going with my card? When yeah. they use a card, they would hand it to somebody uh, and it would disappear from sight. Yeah. And so, so do you guys use NFC payments, you know, like Apple Pay, Google Pay, Android Pay, all those? I use uh, as much as I can. I do, yes. Yeah. And I actually haven't set up my phone for it yet. Oh, okay. So I do it, and I try to do it as much as I can. Um, of course, it's much more secure because it's only exchanging a one-time token. Uh, so not only is it a secure way to make that transaction, but if somebody were to break into the store's system later on, or maybe already had broken into the store system, um, they're not going to get your credit card information because your credit card information is never with the store. It's just this one-time little token between you and either Apple or Google or Samsung or you know whoever it is that's um, doing the transaction for you. Um, but a lot of times, it's funny, they, they're upgrading equipment and putting this equipment into stores, and it doesn't seem they're telling the uh, the cashiers because I so often am the first person to use it. You know, I'll, go, I'll look and I'll see the NFC, you know, the near field communication little symbol. It looks like a Wi-Fi symbol turned on its side, um, you know, with the device. And I'll say, oh, you must take Apple Pay. And either they don't know what that is or they say, no, I don't think so. And then I look behind me to see if there's anybody behind me in line. And if there's nobody behind me in line, I'll say, well, I think you do. Let me try it. And, and I'll try it. And sometimes I am the first person that they've ever seen use it. And they're surprised when their cash register suddenly rings up that I paid for the, paid for the item. Yep. Have you ever tried it and have it not work? Oh yeah, definitely. There's been times when I've seen the symbol and you know, the equipment got the symbol on it or comes up on the screen, but maybe it hasn't been enabled and it just has not 
what worked hasn't gone through and I always have my credit card ready. You know, by the time I'm, I have my phone out and it's waiting and it's like, mm, this may not be working, I already have my credit card out of my pocket and I don't want to inconvenience them anymore than I have to. I definitely um, ran into it last week where I too was the first person to use it. They just got the new equipment and they were kind of interested in how it would work and it didn't. Um, <laughs> so same thing, you know, you like you say, you reach into your pocket and certainly it's one of those th- things where like you, if you, if you, you know, notice that there's no line behind you, um, you get the opportunity to say, Hey, watch this. And uh, yeah, Hopefully, hopefully it works. What I like about at least Android Pay is it makes it really, really easy to choose my card, the card yeah. I want to use, just by flipping through on the screen uh, the cards that I've got registered with the app, and it works really, really well. What's interesting also is that the credit card providers, in my case, you know, American Express or Chase or even my local bank, um, they, A, have been encouraging me to do this, because as you said, it is more secure from their perspective. There's less fraud, which is what they care about. Um, but also when you register the card with your Android Pay, and I would presume Apple Pay, um, there's actually a check that happens between the app and the credit card company to make sure that everything is, is copacetic and everything is ready to go. Uh, and that's kind of a nice additional check. Yeah, there. I mean they're thrilled about it because they spend a lot of money on fraud prevention. And when, you know, people are using these new systems, fraud is way down or almost non-existent. Um, So if, you know, they would be thrilled if everybody would switch over right away and their profits would probably go way up because they'd be able to uh, cut down on their fraud prevention spending. Um, all those algorithms that are trying to figure out if it's you, really you buying stuff, all the people on the phones, talking to people who have a, their credit card numbers stolen, all that stuff, they they would save a lot of money when you know when people switch over to this system. So they're happy with it. Um, and this is also one of those yeah. things where the small businesses actually benefit, I'd say, the most because when it all comes down to it, it's the small business that often takes it in the shorts when credit card theft happens. They're the ones who are out the product or the money or the whatever that they've sold and not been reimbursed for. That's a good point. Yeah. And a lot of small businesses today are using, uh, you know, new types of, you know, checkout uh, devices that are basically either iPads or Android tablets um, with, you know, the, the readers on them. So instead of having to buy a cash register, which are actually quite expensive, a you know, real cash register with all that stuff, um, you just have this little terminal that's an iPad uh, with a little credit card reader on it. And there's some software and, and they use that. And strange thing is, I, I find it strange that a lot of those don't actually take Apple Pay. It's like you're using an iPad <laughs> as a cash <laughs> register and yeah. yet it doesn't have that- Apple Pay. An um, NFC uh, transmitter is slightly different than an NF- NFC reader for whatever reason. Exactly. Yeah, but but I have I have now seen that some of them do. Some of the places that I went to before cool. that had an iPad as a checkout. Now, when I asked, they said, "Yeah, actually, we just uh, you, the device, the little reader now does have that in it, and you can use Apple Pay for it." So that's uh, it. Always cracks me up when they uh, you know before they had NFC, they'd hand me their iPad. 
so that I can sign using my finger, <laughs> which of course looks nothing like my real signature. But right, yeah, your finger. Yeah, it's. It, yeah, I know it's. It's. But the, apparently, that's going away. We won't have to sign with our fingers anymore either. Yay! Yeah, that, that'll that'll be good. And it'll, be, it'll just be weird because it's so ingrained, you know, for like almost three generations of credit card users in the United States to do that signature thing. And to think that uh, it's just one part of life that's about to become old fashioned, like, you know, manual uh, uh, windows in cars <laughs> and things like that. It just won't exist anymore. Well, and oh, they have been playing with this for a little while because my local grocery store doesn't make me sign. If it, I think it's $50, if it's right. less than 50, you don't have to sign. But now apparently it's going to be any amount. And I really think this is going to be a cool uh, development. Yep, I'm okay with that. I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, people were okay with um, treating the uh, the restaurant staff poorly and then giving them your credit card to walk <laughs> away into the back room. Um, they were okay with that, but they're concerned about shopping online. Whereas now shopping online, providing your credit card to a company over the, over a secure connection or doing it now via NFC with the card never leaving your uh, uh, your site, so much more secure than uh, than what it's been in the past. You know, I've had customers actually mail me their credit card information, including their security code, which theoretically you're never supposed to write that down. You know, right. with the uh, the card number, but they'll mail it to me because they're afraid to do it online. Well, the only way I can run their card is to go onto my own website and enter it for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. And, And, you know, and if they enter it themselves, I never see it. Occasionally they'll say, hey, would you add, you know, another year to my subscription? It's like, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I don't have your credit card information. I never did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The uh, online systems are going towards the Apple Pay and the like as well. And I'm seeing that more and more often where, um, that you know, Apple Pay symbol appears there, and I can, you know, use that as my payment method instead of directly with the credit card. So it's still going through my credit card, but it's uh, it's going through the Apple Pay system. So that if that website, you know, I might not trust them one hundred percent, but it doesn't matter. I'm I'm using Apple Pay, so it's a one time. So are you when you do that? Are you how are you authenticating yourself with your Apple account? Yeah. So you authenticate if so if I'm on my desktop Mac, which does not have a, a, a fingerprint reader, then my phone, my iPhone actually shows a authentication screen. So I go and I hit Apple Pay and pay on my computer, you know, in my browser. And then I take my phone out of my pocket, my phone is actually saying, authenticate for this purchase. And I use Face ID since I have an iPhone 10, but before that I would use Touch ID to authenticate on my phone. On my MacBook Pro, which has the touch bar with the fingerprint reader, I can do it right there on the MacBook Pro. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's neat. I've done that several times now. And it's great. Whenever I see that I can do that, I absolutely do that because it's just the safest way to make a transaction. Well, part of it too, from my perspective, and one of the reasons I do things like use NFC when I can, and I would use these kinds of things if the if the websites I... Uh, I bought from support of them. I want to encourage this. I want to be one of the people that's, that's using this. You know, it's one more data point for them that says, yes, people are using this. People do appreciate this. 
keep it up. Yep. And I, and I try to get that point across too when I check out because every person on the other side of the counter that I'm showing, you know, oh, look, I can, I can do this. Um, hopefully it's encouraging them to try it out themselves and, uh, and then, you know, be a little bit safer in their, in, right. in their purchases. Cool stuff. Yep. And better security was not to like. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So, uh, so anybody been reading anything interesting or projects you've been working on that have been interesting the last couple of weeks? I've just been helping a couple of people make the move to Windows 10. That's always interesting. Mm. How do I get the computer to network with the old computer? How do I move from my email from Vista, which the, you know, the email program that came with Windows is no longer supported. And it's, uh, it's always challenging. Uh, but fortunately, the uh, the people I help, or I'll just say the people that I choose to help, are the ones who are the most amenable to uh, to learning a few new things and being patient when things don't quite work the way they expected them to. So mm. it's happening, slowly but surely. Yep. Yeah, still and long I've been way to go. Uh, slowly moving my websites from one uh, theme to another because the theme I chose several years ago to be standard for all my sites came to end of life. So they're going to support it for one more year and then dump it. And so I'm trying to get all my sites moved over before they dump it. Ah, interesting. So there's some advanced functionality in that WordPress theme that you were using. It was one of those um, kind of all in one themes that was, very um, tweakable, had, had lots mm-hmm. of different things in it, and it supports WooCommerce. Uh-huh. So I was u- using it for all that. And um, then uh, Automatic, the, the company that does WordPress, bought them out because uh, it was owned by Woo. And uh, then they started looking at it and seeing where WordPress is going to be evolving with the new Gutenberg editor and all that. And they say, you know what? This isn't going to be compatible. And they, uh, it's called Canvas. That, that's the theme. And uh, they realize that um, it's just not going to work once they start using all these new technologies that they have planned for WordPress core. So they just decided to, to drop it. Yeah, it's almost impossible to stand still with any of this stuff. If you use, you know, WordPress and then a theme on top of that and some plugins, there's always something to do. Something needs updating, something that's going away and you need to replace it, something that you need to, uh, you know, you have to move to a new server because you're using, you know, the version of Apache you're using is too old and all of that. And it's, there's always maintenance work. Even if yeah. the website looks the same to everybody else, it's just there year after year we're always behind it and having to do things just to keep it going year after year. It's funny. One of the projects I did over the weekend uh, was in fact, just that moving a website from one server, actually shared hosting out at HostGator uh, to my own server. Uh, It's (laughs) you guys will laugh, but it's a Corgi site and the person who was uh, running it decided to uh, pull back on it, but wanted to be able to, uh, have the site live and essentially archived uh, online, still have it be present, but not have to pay ongoing hosting and ongoing maintenance to a third party and that kind of stuff. So I said, yeah, sure, why not? I've got space on my server. It's not a whole lot of traffic. 
what's one more WordPress site? I already have, tw- <laughs> I already have 20 of them on my server. So it's like, you know, one, what's one more? Um, so yes, that was part of, uh, part of the weekend. Actually, the weekend was mostly just waiting for DNS to finish propagating since most of the work was done on Friday. But, uh, yes, the dailycorgi.com is now hosted on the Ask Leo server. I'm amazed that I seem to have more WordPress sites than you do. I think I've got 24. Uh, mine's a rough guess. I'll have to look. I use iThemes Sync. I don't know if you're using that. I, I am. Using, I use that. It's the best way to keep you know keep all the plugins up to date across the board. I'll have to double check. I've got a license for 25, and I think I'm like you know two or three away from the top of that. So we're pretty close. Yeah. Well, I just had to update my um, my backup size. I finally was getting you know try, trying to shoehorn in in my one gigabyte backup space, and finally said to heck with it and paid for five gigs more. So now I've got tons of space. Oh, so you're doing the backup over at iThemes? Yes. You're using their stash? Yeah. I've been pushing my stuff to S3, Amazon S3, since I've already got stuff out there anyway. It's just easy enough for me to do that. Right. Nice. All right. Should we wrap it up? I think so. Sounds good to me. Well, thanks for listening this week. The show notes are at tehpodcast.com slash teh7. We're also on Twitter at the teh podcast and on Facebook at slash the teh podcast. So you can send us messages there. You can follow us there. See if you uh, want to uh, suggest any topics. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye, everyone.